this year, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. Pair your impressive skills with our advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop, powered by an Intel Core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Your dream setup, amazing prices, and free shipping await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Today, we have a very different kind of interview with Roger Waters, who's currently on his This Is Not A Drill arena tour. The interview was conducted for Rolling Stone by James Ball. James is a UK investigative journalist and global editor of the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. He's also the co-host of a podcast called The New Conspiracist. This is not an interview we wanted to present without context. So James and I are going to talk a little bit about what you're going to hear. It's certainly an interview with a very famous musician, but it is not almost at all an interview about music. It's an interview about politics, and it's, I think, fair to say going to be a controversial interview. Roger's politics are, in some cases, I think it's fair to describe them as fringe. Sometimes he refuses to acknowledge what I would think the majority of experts agree to be facts on certain subjects, and so it was a contentious interview, was it not? Um, it, it was certainly sparky, yes. I think it's odd. I I think he genuinely comes into things with good intentions and thinks he's championing human rights, but we very, very quickly ended up sort of clashing about what's happening in Ukraine, what's happened in Syria, the nature of oppression, the nature of propaganda. And, you know, I know that people who've sort of lived in Syria or who've lived in Ukraine or who still live in Ukraine will find some of what he was saying very offensive and you know we do obviously challenge him on this this was the point of the interview but I think it's only fair to warn people that you know he is out there and he is unapologetically out there. As you were saying before we started there are many points at which in theory you could have spent a lot more time debating him challenging and refuting him but it's an interview ultimately not a debate so there are many cases where he chose to move on correct? Yeah it's it's always a dilemma when you're doing an interview that's sort of contentious like this. So I will say for Roger he's he's charming he's a rock star you know but we end up shouting at each other at times of this pretty close and certainly cutting each other off. And if you're sort of debating someone or if you're having a conversation, you continue that fight. If you're a journalist and you're doing an interview, it's your job to try and touch across everything that's relevant. And so there are multiple occasions where I hope I never sort of say, hey, OK, let's you have your way. I don't think I do. But I will sort of repeatedly go, we'll leave this there and move to something else. Because really, I think any one of about five or six different topics that come up in the interview, we would have just stopped on that until we ran out of time completely. Basically, what I wanted to do, for full transparency, I wanted to make sure we spoke and introduced this interview, in part to make it clear that while Roger says some things that may be very offensive to a lot of people, it's not that we're presenting this as something we endorse. The idea was he's someone who's very vocal, very famous on this huge tour right now and is propagating these views to a lot of people. And the idea of this interview, and correct me if I'm wrong, was to take him seriously 
you're an experienced investigative journalist with a, a lot of knowledge about these issues and to, you know, try to give him a very serious interview on these topics. One of the things he says is that he, he ends up saying that he believes that Jews in the UK and in the United States bear responsibility for the actions of Israel, which is a pretty extreme and unusual view. I, I was extremely surprised he, he took that view. And uh, I sort of talked him through and round with it. And eventually he sort of partially walks it back. But his reflective sort of answer when he was asked on that was a very strong yes. It ties into some very old and very dark tropes. I think that's why, honestly, I, I don't think the walk back cancels anything or makes it okay. But I think that was why... I wanted to make sure I'd given him every possible chance to have done it because it was such a shocking comment. You know, I hadn't been setting a trap for it either. I'd made it pretty, you know, it was there and clear. It wasn't some sneaky phrasing or anything, but it really shocked me. I also want to flag something else he says. uh, He says that Jews living in Israel do not have ancestral ties to the region, and that is, of course, not true. And on an entirely different subject, the sexual assault accusations against Julian Assange, some of the language that Roger uses to discuss those accusations may well be offensive to some listeners. So I wanted to kind of flag that as well. You know, there were several times I was asking questions I thought would get a simple answer that he, you know, he would not take that answer. And so, yeah, I think, as you say, he he says that, he's had enough of people saying that they like his music but they can't stand his politics or you know they'll ignore his politics and that the two come as a package and given that you know I think if he's out and performing you do have to give those politics a bit of scrutiny and unfortunately you know he has ended up in a position of war crimes denial very very skeptical about Ukraine, but accusing opponents of uh, Bashar al-Assad in Syria of faking chemical weapons attacks. There's nothing wrong with being skeptical about the media, but there comes a point where it turns into something that just lets you deny quite obvious evidence. And I was sort of trying to push Roger with these sort of sense of, I know people who have been affected by these, I know people who have witnessed these, to try and break him out of this, you know, but the mainstream media. And sadly, it just didn't end up very successful. Ukraine, we end up talking about a very strange claim he makes that he's on a Ukrainian government death list. You know, most of the most of the things I'd done my research and I prepared for, that one I'll admit blindsided me. And so in the moment I moved on. Um I've subsequently sort of researched and there is a sort of fringe far right site in Ukraine that lists enemies of the country and it's got about two hundred thousand people on it. Um it's it says it's not a death list, it says it's sort of for law authorities and special forces uh, and it's got about 200,000 people on but you know is it is it the Ukrainian government no is it in some way equivalent to actual war crimes happening on the ground no can you see why it stayed in his head yes but you know there are these very strange and jarring claims and I'll be honest there are quite a lot of them it was quite an intense interview. When someone makes a lot of assertions in a row, some of them arguably factually unattached to reality, 
when they spew so many things at once, it's difficult for a journalist to grapple with them all. It's a form of argument called gish gallop. Essentially, you throw out so many bad arguments quickly that the person arguing against either needs far more time and also a lot of knowledge to unpick it and won't be very convincing to you know, to someone just coming to it cold. But I think that's part of why we were careful on this. You know, we didn't... This wasn't broadcast live. We've sort of put context on it in the audio interview. We've put context in it at the top. I did a lot of prep over time to sort of be aware of what arguments he was likely to bring up. I actually spoke to people who I know and trust around sort of both the Ukraine and the Syria conflicts. So it was to try and sort of actually take this seriously as an interview and take the politics seriously so that we could challenge as much in the moment and put context in the moment. I think that's very different to when people put people with these fringe beliefs on live air or on stage. I've written two cover stories that involved Roger. I spent a lot of time with him. I tended to avoid politics as much as possible <laughs> in talking to him. He can be very charming, very cordial. I always liked him as, as a person, and he was always very kind to me. I think that one of the things I see in your interview and elsewhere is there's a certain extent to which he seems to treat this all as sort of a, a dorm room bull session, where he can make these outrageous assertions, and then perhaps sometimes partially walk them back. It's like he doesn't understand the gravity sometimes of what he's saying on some of these points, denying war crimes in Ukraine, for instance. It, it genuinely, it made me really sad after the interview because he didn't strike me as someone like the online trolls that often do this, where you're never quite sure if they're joking and they sort of push into it and... You know, sometimes what starts as a joke becomes serious. It felt like he's ended up in a very similar place. But having started somewhere much more earnest and maybe even compassionate, you know, I think he really sincerely cares about human rights and about sort of violations, but has ended up in this fairly awful place where he's telling victims of war crimes that they're liars or that they're propaganda tools. And that's a fairly bleak place to end up, you know, especially for someone with his kind of platform and someone with his kind of charm. I mean, the guy's 79 and he's playing arenas and the show's good. You know, I listened to it. I watched it. This sort of sense that you can get lost into these fringe politics and end up with some genuinely awful views. Well, I think, you know, not actually hating the people and thinking that you're coming from a place of compassion. It it just, it genuinely made me really sad because it did make me think, how do you pull people back from that? How do you stop these kind of conspiracies swirling? Because it only really helps the autocrats of the world. And that's who, you know, people like Roger Waters are supposedly against. Is there anything else that you think people need to understand before they hear this interview? So I don't think so. I, I've never sort of worked so hard to try and persuade someone not to listen to an interview I've done. It's certainly interesting, I promise you that, and we've, um, you know, we didn't want it to be open to allegations of super heavy or selective editing, so there's, there's a lot of interview to check. Um, but I think it should be viewed as that kind of case study of look where 
scepticism can get you if it just turns into cynicism. Look where this sort of sense of being too aware of trusting what you believe in the media can get you. Maybe, you know, maybe it's everything is about moderation and that includes sort of reasonable doubts because it yeah it's um, it, it was a bleak way to spend 90 minutes i'll be honest and now we'll hear this conversation between james ball and roger waters it starts out with james talking about something at the beginning of roger's current tour where an announcer who is in fact roger himself tells the audience in essence that if they don't want to hear about politics they should, quote-unquote, fuck off to the bar. So, how are you? Uh, I'm fine, thank you. I woke up early this morning. I'm on the West Coast. I'm in San Francisco, looking out at Alcatraz. So, cool. yeah, that's a little bit of history going on there, isn't there? Yeah. So, um, I, I really enjoyed watching the tour. Quite striking from the get-go with your announcer, the um, please fuck off to the bar right now. Have you had anyone do so yet? <laughs> You know, what is really interesting is that you are talking to the announcer and hardly anyone notices. I did not notice that, no. That's me being an announcer. (laughs) That is just my ordinary voice talking in a conversational way when I've I've got a slight smile playing at the corners of my mouth because I think what I'm saying is funny, and it is, and they do like it, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it, I, it struck me as playful. I was just uh, sort of wondering if anyone had taken a huff at it. I would have thought it's unlikely if they've come to see a see yeah. a show, but you got no idea. I think it's very important, though, philosophically, to say that at the beginning of the show. You know, because obviously, over the last fifty years or so, I've had a lot of people saying, "Oh, why doesn't he just play the hits?" You know, we're not interested in his political views or what. I'm drifting into a slightly northern accent. I'm not sure I'm doing that. You know? So is, is it because I have a very soft northern accent? I think it is, yeah. yeah. I think it is. It's my ears going all magnetic and picking it up. <laughs> it did feel like a big statement that the politics and the music aren't separate. And if people are trying to do that, it's possibly pissing you off? Well... Well, no, clearly in the past it has when people come to a show of mine and have not noticed over the last 50 years that I'm a very political person and that that there is politics in almost... It's either politics or heartbreak in all of my songs, you know, because those I don't need to go down that path because I hope we've all experienced heartbreak at one time or another in our lives. Because if you haven't experienced the high of love, then you can't experience the low of heartbreak. So I personally, I would rather live on those kind of extremes of the sine wave of my emotional life than not. It's very obviously a very political show, and there's lots of quite specific points on it, you know, several of which I want to raise. But if you were trying to sort of say what connected them, what was sort of the overall message of it, what would you want someone walking away to think of the political side of it? What would that be? Two things. One, politically, my platform is very small. It's just the Declaration of Universal Human Rights in Paris in 1948. All 29 or 30 articles, however many there are. So that's one thing that is there. uh, Now, I did have something else in my mind. 
uh, and it's gone for the moment. But that runs through that runs through the whole show because that's sort of the base. You know, there's a fundamental question that we all get to ask ourselves. I do like the idea of that sort of challenging conversation. I don't think people do them often now. Have you had any success kind of making the bar real around yourself, do you think? Well, it's interesting that you should come up with the bar because that's the other idea that is central to the whole show that I couldn't remember. Paris 1948 and the bar, those are the two things. The bar is revolutionary. It's a revolutionary idea to have in a rock and roll show, and it works. I can't tell you how exciting it is to find out every night how well it works. People get it immediately. So when I sit there at the piano and go, you know, so this piano here represents the bar and blah, 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 and willy-nilly, all of you are in the bar with us so we can exchange our feelings and ideas and uh, freely and frankly without fear of retribution. We are in a safe place here in this room, all 16,000 of us. And they get it. And by the end of the show, I mean, I can't tell you how we do the second time we do the bar. Well, you've seen it. So you saw it on the stick. Yeah. So you saw that thing of we do the second bit. I don't know how late your stick was. Now, because we change it a bit, and uh, now it has some a couple of verses about my brother and my father and blah, blah, blah. And then it goes on to a little bit of a nod towards indigenous people and an acknowledgement that we're playing in there, that we're playing on their land and all that stuff. And you hear hear the audience responding to this stuff, you know. And and the band are having a drink around the piano, actually physically drinking. (laughs) And it's a beautiful moment, you know. I'm sorry to sound like an excited teenager, that's how I feel because I've been doing rock and roll in arenas and stadiums for 50 years and I've never experienced this. So part of what goes on in This Is Not A Drill is an, an expression of the fact that I am no longer 13, 14, 15, 16 years old wearing all black, standing in the corner, scared shitless of everything and incapable of sharing feelings really with people. It's taken me a long time to figure out how to actually do that. So here I am now, 79 years old, and and, and finally I can I feel comfortable on stage. Yeah, cool. It's interesting. I mean, one incredibly sort of striking message on the show um, is the sort is the sort of statement, you can't have occupation and human rights. Now, why was that one important to display among the others? Well, that, that's clearly, that's reference to Palestine. That comes in deja vu. And funnily enough, I was looking at my stick from, from the last show that we did, which was in Tacoma, was it? No, it was in Sacramento, night before last. And when that comes up, because I, I look at the show, like you looked at that stick, I look at that stick, every night between one show and the next show. And I write notes and when we meet again at the next place. And I speak to Sean Evans, who's my conspirator in all things visual in the show. And we change stuff all the time. Um, 
And uh, I was toying after seeing the last show, should I put in, when it says, fuck the occupation, I sort of want to put, fuck the Israeli occupation. So I want to be a bit more specific. Yeah. And then, oh, no, the words are too long. It won't look, <laughs> it won't look as good. It, yeah, well, and these are all, this is all, you know, we work on it very in very great detail to try and give it the most emotional impact. Um, but, yeah, so we're, we're talking, but it's true of every occupation, of every, it's true of the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. It, it's true of all occupations, of all land, by any imperialist power. It's true of Iraq in 2003. It's true of Kenya in 1956, or whenever it was, or Suez in 56 would be a better example, what with us being English and everything. So, um, and this is stuff that is really weird. We live in a time, as I know you know, James, where in America, where I live, the mainstream media, all that's all television, all network, all cable, all newspapers, everything except some of the stuff you see on the internet, like the Grey Zone or the Real News, or that the, I won't try and mention them all, and some good blogs that you can find from people who have good things to say. But the rest of it is completely controlled. It's monopolized by the powers that be and by the government. And it, and and people who work for that media don't know what it's like in the... Oh, my God, the Rolling Stone must be part of it. Or maybe... It's, <laughs> I don't know. If, if it helps, I mostly work for a not-for-profit. Uh, so oh, I don't know for corporate media. This is a freelance gig. All right. Well, I'm very glad that you're doing it then so that I can be kind of... Open. Well, I would anyway be open and honest with you. Um, so there's that. So there's the... The narrative that we're being fed by the propaganda monsters, and you probably notice the word propaganda a lot in another brick two and three and happiest days and three. And so that's another big point that I'm making is that we're fed this stuff from the cradle to the grave. And that it's no wonder that we are we are our minds are fertile ground if somebody wants to tell us that the Russians are evil and the Chinese are, and that we're really good and that what we're doing is spreading truth and light and democracy and freedom and liberty. That's why they hate us, because they're evil. And, and of course, we, when I say we, I'm now speaking as a taxpayer in the United States, are not. We are the, we are the most evil of all by a factor of at least 10 times. We kill more people. We interfere in more people's elections. We, the American empire is doing all this shit, all this, but the man in the street doesn't when you if you say that to him and i'm saying it in this show and when you do they kind of they're a bit surprised but because we're in the bar together they actually listen and they go hang on a minute he doesn't seem such a bad old cove maybe i wouldn't mind sitting down and having a drink with him and talking to him about things maybe he's not completely insane I mean, I I wonder, though, whether someone, you know, if you pick someone on the street in Ukraine right now, whether they would take that statement and go, he is completely insane. I mean, you have you have said, and I agree that, you know, Russia's occupation of um, Ukraine counts, you know, as a violation of human rights. We've sort of seen independent evidence of 
absolute atrocities there, sort of, you know, not just civ civilian cluster munitions, gang rape, you you know, you name it. Um, seen it, it, but hey, but the, you, you're... I'm not saying it doesn't happen elsewhere, but... No, no, it, that's, not why, that's not why I'm interrupting you, James. I'm interrupting you because, yeah, you've seen it, but you've seen it on what I've just described to you as Western propaganda. It's exactly the obverse of the saying, you, Russian propaganda, Russians interfered with our election, Russians did that. It's all lies, 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 lies. Well, if you think that what you're seeing, if coming from the mainstream media, is not Western propaganda... Montreux, but I, I, I'm, in a, I'm in a good position here. I'm not relying on the mainstream media for these accounts. I know... Ukrainians. I know Ukrainian reporters who are out there. I know British reporters who've been out there and witnessed this stuff themselves. They've seen the mass graves with their own eyes. They are talking to these people. Uh, yeah, maybe. Like, no, like, I'm only saying maybe because I read all those reports too, and I I search them very carefully yeah. to try and divine the truth and, and also see where the information comes from and who it is. Don't forget, I'm on a kill list. That is that is supported by the Ukrainian government. I'm on the fucking list, and they've killed people recently. There was that young Dugan woman in Paris who I think they were trying to bomb our father. Or, no, in 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 Moscow, they were trying to bomb our father, and they killed it. But when they kill you, they write "liquidated" across your picture. Well, I'm one of those fucking pictures. So, and when I read stuff, which I have done in blogs and things criticizing me for my I often I always go and look and see where it came from and it's amazing how often when I've done this hunt and hunted it down it is da 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 ukraine.org so so that don't run away with the idea that the reporting that you're getting is real it's very very because I from my point of view would find it very easy to believe all the reporting that I read that say that's a load of rubbish. This is actually, and one of the one of the problems with getting to the truth is that where I live, in the United States of America, the first thing I did on February the twenty fourth was go to RT. That morning, gone. But for what it's worth, I said I thought that was a stupid decision. But um, but yes. Um, uh, what was the stupid decision? Hang on, what? Cutting off RT. Um, I agree with you entirely. It's like it's crazy to cut off anybody. Uh, uh, well, in my case, I just think as well, it gives it gives a false balance, as if you know, in Russia, if you call the war a war, you can face up to fifteen years in prison. In the US, if you say, you know, Ukraine should surrender or it's a special military operation or whatever, you're going to get criticised in a couple of outlets. But by banning RT, you can make media in the two seem almost equivalent, which they're not. You know, like media is a lot freer in the US than in Russia. That may well be true. When, I'm, when this is brought up to me, I always say, I don't live in Russia. I don't speak Russian. I can't really comment. You may well be right. I tend to think that you probably are right and that it's draconian and authoritarian and autocratic and all of those things. I certainly have no love for Putin. Even if it was only that he 
rides around bare-chested on a fucking <laughs> horse pretending to kill polar bears. That would be enough to turn me off forever, you know, because it's pitiful. It's so putrid and daft. And, and so it's very hard to kind of... So I'm no Putin lover, and I certainly wouldn't dream of apologising for Putin. But on the other hand, I have been reading everything that's come out of Mearsheimer's mouth since 2004 through 2008 through 2014. So I did follow the coup in 2014. So I was listening to Victoria Newland talking to the American ambassador and say, oh, who are we going to have for president? And the, what? What the fuck business is of yours? Well, we're the American empire. We decide who rules and what. Yeah, but this bloke was democratically elected to be the president of the Ukraine by the Ukrainian people. What are you talking about? You can't depose your Kanovich or whatever his bloody name was. And they say, yeah, we can watch. And they did. And that- so, you, Ukrainian politics and Ukrainian elections are murky. The, the issue that sort of I struggle with is if... If we, I think we both agree, whether we agree or not, on the extent of war crimes, we both agree Russia invaded Ukraine, and yeah. and that's and is, we don't agree though we don't agree that Russia annexed the Crimea, which is the story. Does no, it didn't. Let's well, we can we can pause that. I don't, you know, <laughs> in the spirit of um, Russia invaded Ukraine, they sent heavy military to try and take the capital. That failed. They're still occupying lots of areas against their will, there's sort of, why is it sort well, of yeah, resisting are, that yeah. occupation not a good cause? Why is what? Resisting that occupation not a good cause. Because it's an unnecessary war and those people should not be dying and Russia should not have been encouraged to invade the Ukraine after they tried for 20 years to avoid it by suggesting diplomatic measures to, to Western governments, like saying, please um, adhere to the agreements that Baker made with Gorbachev in 1918 or 1991, I think, where, where, where they shook hands on the deal that they would not um, encroach into the ex-Warsaw Pact countries beyond the eastern borders of Germany. And they agreed. The Americans agreed to that at the time. But they, they went, oh, no, we're going to win. We, we didn't mean to agree to that. Isn't that a very imperialist view? Yeah, it is, that you can encroach on other people's... No, uh, that you're in taking, that countries don't have the right to self-determine who their allies are. Well, it's a, it, or, or where they deploy their nuclear missiles. Go back to Cuba in 1962, uh, which is a perfect analogy for the Ukraine right now. And if you don't think it is, you can read the letters to Zelensky that I've written I've read them. And also you could, if you want, I'll send you a response to that from Ray McGovern, who's an ex-CIA analyst. You may have heard of it. He's very active politically now, who said, excellent letter, Roger. You're so right to bring up the uh, absolute equivalence of the Cuban Missile Crisis and how close we came to being destroyed by that. And I don't think that any of us should forget just how dangerous this war in the Ukraine is and 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 how how leaders of countries actually behave 
And why aren't they, why, why, is, why aren't Biden and Putin resolving this? I mean, at the moment, they're not, because they're not talking to one another. I mean, isn't it up to Ukraine to resolve it, not up to America? Right. I mean, this is the issue with this frame of the world. It sees well, hang on. great power politics. Don't we believe in the right of people to self-determination? Yes, but the people of the Ukraine elected Zelensky as their new president and hopefully their new government in 19 in 2019 on the platform that he was going to end the civil war as they called it then in the donbass implement the minsk 2 agreements and make peace with the russian federation by saying that they would not join nato that is the platform he stood on and he got i think ukrainian public position on that probably moved somewhat when Russia moved 200,000 troops in. Didn't well, it? they didn't do it. They didn't do it. That was, that was three years ago. That's three years ago. Somebody held a gun to Zelensky's head and said, you're not doing that. We don't want you to do that. Or how? Why did he change his mind? Why did policy change? I don't, I don't think anyone forces someone to send in two hundred thousand uh, sort of troops and heavy armory. I'm not saying that, James. I'm not a fucking idiot. All right, I, I'm not saying anyone forced Putin to. I I was surprised when they invaded, but I was also interested in the language that they used, the special military operation, yeah. and also. Um, point B was that they wanted to denazify. Well, that's different because there weren't many Nazis in the Donbass, but there's a lot in the government in Kiev. So, so those two things are somewhat self-contradictory, I think. Though I though I do understand the concern after the Maidan coup for, over over the fact that the Russians believe that Ukraine is is ruled by Nazis, and they may be right or not. This is why the whole thing of everybody pouring so much energy into propaganda makes it so difficult for people like you and me who care about the truth to, to you know, to delve into it and turn the stones over and try and find out what the truth is. I would love to know what the truth is about Russians raping babies or not. You know, and all of that, and the graves that they found, and the, the ICC and the UN do have war crime investigators there. You know, we're not just relying on media or relying on, you know, Ukrainian government reports, which obviously are going to be unreliable. It's wartime. You know, there are independent bodies there that are finding early evidence of this and are, you know, launching full-scale investigations. Yeah, but we've got to believe in something, haven't we? Yes, we have. But the problem is, James, is that when we send people in to do these jobs, if they come up with inconvenient truths, they are rejected. Look at the invasion of Iraq in 2003. I know you'll go, oh, yeah, well, yeah, of course they lied about weapons of mass destruction. Openly, in the United Nations, Colin Powell, on the floor of the General Assembly, making his speech, we have intelligence. We know that Saddam Hussein could bomb. Tony Blair was telling us Saddam Hussein could bomb Cyprus or something in 45 minutes with a nuclear weapon. You know, I mean, we can grin about it, but a million Iraqis died. And there was no, and when, and when the, and the Hans Blick was one of the major, they went in and they said, there aren't any weapons of mass destruction. And they told them all. And they went, 
we're not interested. Yeah. In Although he was he was allowed to say that it was there. The UN didn't endorse the invasion. Most yeah, of the US's they, allies they, didn't endorse the invasion. You know, that the UN then could say, or its investigators could say, we can't see this. We could this speak. Time, yeah, we could speak for hours. They're saying we can. Yeah, we could speak for hours and hours about wouldn't it be nice if the United Nations was a different animal and if there wasn't uh, the thing of the five permanent members of the Security Council all having a veto, so that it doesn't matter if it's only the United States and Israel that votes against something. That's enough. Or in fact, only the United States can veto any resolution. Because I was going to say, Israel's not a permanent member. <laughs> no, it's not. So um, just before we sort of move on from Ukraine, because I actually, funnily enough, I wanted to ask you about Iraq just next. So um, you sort of, each time we've talked about it, you've sort of specifically said the Ukraine. Is that deliberate or is that sort of no. habit as it's quite a meaningful thing to Ukrainians at the moment? No, it's ignorance on my part. I'd like you to explain it to me because I do like to know things. So, so it, this wasn't something I was super aware of until a couple of years ago, but the Ukraine implies that Ukraine is part of Russia and it's uh, a region, uh, whereas saying Ukraine without the the sort of gives it its independence as a country. Well, so, thank you for that. I, I, funnily enough, I have been, in my writings recently, I've stopped calling it the Ukraine. So maybe I intuited some of that, or maybe somebody else has told me. Yeah, well, that's that's why I wanted to ask that, because otherwise, you know, people will impute something into it that's not there. Yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. No worries. Today, hip-hop dominates pop culture, but it wasn't always like that. And to tell the story of how that changed, I want to take you back to a very special year in rap. 88, it was too much good music. The world was on fire. fire yeah. I'm Will Smith. This is Class of 88, my new podcast about the moments, albums, and artists that inspired a sonic revolution and secured 1988 as one of hip-hop's most important years. We'll talk to the people who were there. And most of all, we'll bring you some amazing stories. You know what my biggest memory from that tour is? It was your birthday. Yes, and you brought me to Sade. Life-size cardboard cutout. <laughs> this is Class of 88, the story of a year that changed hip-hop. Follow Class of 88 on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. I don't know anyone who isn't constantly running low on time. You've got to juggle work and the rest of life. Sometimes you just need groceries or drinks or whatever else, and there's zero time to head out and go shopping. There's one way around that, and that's DashPass from DoorDash. I'm definitely a DoorDash customer, and there's always something a little magical about your groceries popping up at your door. And when you want more from delivery, you can get it with DashPass by DoorDash. With DashPass, you get $0 delivery fees and lower service fees on eligible orders which makes it incredibly easy to save on restaurants, groceries, retail items, and all your local favorites that deliver on DoorDash. And get this, DashPass pays for itself in only two orders on average, so it's worth it right away. And when you sign up, you get special access to exclusive promotions and member-only menu items, all for only $9.99 a month. Get more from delivery for less. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash. Use code MUSICNOW24. 
and get 50% off up to a $10 value when you spend $12 or more after signing up for DashPass. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and more. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash. That's 50% off up to a $10 value when you spend $12 or more after signing up for DashPass with code MUSICNOW24. Again, MUSICNOW24. Subject to change, terms apply. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Macy's, Adidas, Walmart, Nike, Wine.com, Samsung, Lenovo, Sephora, and more and even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use, and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Um, so, um, I immediately recognized one of the videos that you showed during the performance, um, because it was from my old stomping grounds of WikiLeaks and it was the collateral murder video. It's, I think genuinely one of the most shocking clips I've seen is it's horrendous. People would probably say it's an unusual thing to have as part of a gig that you go to, to have a good time. Why did it need to be part of the show? Well, it's been part of my show since 2010. It happened on July the 12th, 2007. And it appeared three years later in September or October 2010, just before I started my wall shows. So I put a very similar clip to that, except the clip I used then shows them actually being machine gun. And, uh, you know, there's another clip that lots of other people have used in this, and so thousands of us have published this stuff now. So we've all committed the same crime there, Julian Assange. Um, is the one where they're collecting, actually, the wounded, one of the cameramen. And they fire again, don't they? And they keep asking permission to open fire on that van, which had two kids in it who were both wounded in the attack. And obviously the guy was killed and the guys trying to rescue him were killed and blah, blah, blah. 
So, so it, that has been a part of every show I've done since October 2010. Um, why did I keep it in this? Because it hasn't gone away. No, they've never accepted culpability. Nothing has happened to the killers or anyone in the chain of command. And it is central to the, to the Assange case. That video, more than anything else, is why the CIO were making plans to assassinate Julian Assange, why they were spying on him in the Ecuadorian embassy, why they made up all the stories about women in, in Sweden and all the stories about him rubbing cat feces all over his prison set, all, all over the Ecuador and why he's been locked up in Belmarsh, although he served the sentence that he was committed for, which was a male, minor bail infringement, which was for 300 days or something years ago now. And so, and he's in very bad shape physically and whatever. So, so Julian Assange is a, is, is a big part of any conversation about us and them, and whether we care about the law or not. Clearly, the United States government and the UK government, neither of them care about the law at all. Otherwise, they wouldn't have produced these kangaroo courts and this charade of a pretense that there's some kind of judicial process going on with Julian. So, um, I mean, look, I, I actually... I worked with WikiLeaks for about sort of four or five months during these releases, during the Manning releases. Um, Assange has nothing good to say about me. <laughs> There's a bit of that mutually, but I do think all of Manning's leaks were hugely in the public interest and hugely significant. But I, you know, I was in Ellingham Hall with with Assange. I was there uh, for a lot of the Swedish case. And while the US extradition, I think, is appalling, and I've said so publicly in all sorts of places, um, and in fact, Noah's published me saying it in a previous life, the editor of Rolling Stone. Um, I also don't think the Swedish case was a fit-up. And I, I worry that we let the importance of people like you know Assange and their work and the human rights causes that attach to it sort of make it almost as if the man's too important to face accountability like mere mortals. How good's your Swedish? It's not very good. Not but, as good as Neil Smeltzer's, probably. But what, what have happened? you read the trials of it? So, so I have... It's a bit up. He says I have no evidence at all, and he's looked at everything that there is. He's read all the police files and from Sweden. I'm only I'm only reiterating what Niels has said. Yeah. I mean I love Niels Smeltzer a bit now because I've got to know him. But so so I was literally in the room when Assange was having bits of the evidence translated for him. You know, this is sort of not second and third hand stuff for me. And he was going, oh yeah, that happened, that happened. Oh, but no, that wasn't rape, you know, kind of thing. These are not CIA plants. These are women who had their life ruined and let me say this is just this this not for me julian assange yes by julian assange how, how was their lives ruined well firstly that i think there was certainly a credible case to answer as to whether his actions constituted sexual assault or not um but then it was about whether a condom broke that's the only it, thing that there is in a story what if, one of them was about whether a condom was ripped the other was about whether sex was engaged when someone was asleep um, but he did then also 
give an interview on the Today programme where he said, I'm not saying that they're CIA stooges, but I'm not not saying that either. Right. Which immediately led to all of the WikiLeaks fans doxing them, tracking them down, threatening them. I've what never heard the story. I've never heard the story. And certainly it's not in any of Niels Meltzer's accounts. That no, it's not because it wasn't stooges. Because he pays attention to the documents and to all the interviews that he did with all of the people and what he got and what he couldn't get out of it. Well, anyway, it was. Let's not you and I argue yeah. about it. Because even, no. what, even what you're saying to me now, so is this a reason that he's locked up in Belmarsh? No, it's not the reason he's locked up in Belmarsh. Um, Why did they go and interview him? They refused to speak to him. They refused absolutely to speak to him. I, I guess, look, we'll move on from this in a second, but I guess it's because usually if you are police or authorities or a judicial thing, you don't sort of come at someone's back and call like a hotel concierge. You know, usually you have to go in and do what they say, don't you? Hey, but Assange did make the point when he said, I don't want to come to Sweden because I'm worried that you will extradite me. I feel safer here to the United States. And if you do, they will kill me. And he was right about that. And there was definitely connivance between uh, the authorities in Sweden and politicians in Sweden and the Swedish Foreign Office and the Swedish police with the Americans. I, I suspect you're right there. What what worries me, and the only reason I, I raised it is, I think we can have a habit of excusing real failings of people because of their political importance or their significance to a cause that we believe in. And I worry people do that with Assange and end up almost suggesting that things like rape or sexual assault aren't this, important. This, this guy's life is at stake. I, I hope you're also worried about the fact that when the powers that be decide to do a huge smear job and all the mainstream media get together to do a smear job on somebody, to reduce the possibility of, of the public having sympathy for his predicament, and being able to look at the thing squarely and go, well, hang on a minute, what's the evidence? A broken condom and that, he, and that he might have fiddled with some woman when she was asleep and we're killing him? What the fuck is that about? It's crazy. And yet that is the basis upon which the, the suppression of sympathy for his case has taken place. And it's taken place on a huge scale. And still... The mainstream media where I live in the United States refuse to cover it at all. There's not a word about it anywhere. It's just like it's a non-story. Oh, he's that rapist they're going to kill. Fuck him. So let us move on from a sandwich back to sort of the, the topic of the collateral murder sort of video. Yeah. And I think what, what sort of one thing that struck me with it is there's a half-hour version as well as the edited clip. And if you watch it, there's an airstrike that you see on a building that contained, I think actually did contain um, militants. But yeah. what struck me even more in the subways than the gunning was that there was someone just walking past the building as they launched the missile. Yeah. And, you know, 20 seconds more, they'd have been past the building and they're not. You know, they, 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 the missile goes as they're just outside it. And I assume they're killed. It doesn't look survivable. Yeah. No. And from that, you know, I always think any time I see an airstrike who was walking by who was near, 
Do you think it's sort of possible to use air power judiciously, et cetera? Or do you think no. that, you know, an airstrike is an airstrike and that's sort of worrying? You know, there's just no way to do it well. I, I, I honestly don't know the answer to that question. There, there is a story from my childhood that I could bring up, which would, might go against the grain of me saying, no, drone strikes particularly are wrong. It's murder. It's extrajudicial murder. And, and should the UK or any country, France, United States of America, give itself license to go anywhere in the world and kill people because it thinks it's a good idea? No, they shouldn't. That should be absolutely banned. Both. You can't do it. Because it presupposes, A, that you know you're right about something, and B, that because you're powerful and strong, like the United States is at the moment, you have a right to go and kill anyone you want, whether it's our, our Waki or whether it's Zabadeo, who the guy they just killed recently standing on his balcony. It's still murder. That is murder. Okay. So, so no, but having said that, I'll tell you the story because my mum told me this story. She had a friend called Maria who, who lived all through the Second World War. My mother was in London in the Second World War. Maria was part of the resistance in Holland. And she was passing messages to England. And, and I don't know the chain of command or how it happened, but the story is that she gave them the address of the Gestapo headquarters in The Hague or wherever it was, or Amsterdam or, or wherever, exact and whatever. And the, uh, what are those little twin engine, a mosquito, they were called mosquito bombers. And that the RAF sent in them, and they did what we call now, what we, a surgical, a surgical attack on Gestapo headquarters in this particular building, in this particular, and without killing any innocent Dutch people, they destroyed all the Gestapo records with, you know, with a couple of, I've no idea whether this is true or apocryphal, but I, as, a, as a small child, I remember thinking how heroic of the pilots and how clever of Maria and how clever of MI5 and blah, blah, blah. So it just shows that in the mind of an eight-year-old or whatever, you can make a case for that being okay. And, of course, I grew up with tons and tons of uh, war movies, so there's lots of things about, you know, it's like... Um, not the Dambusters particularly, but um, all those heavy water plants in Norway, he heroes of Telemark, and you know, all that stuff. So, uh, so we were all brought up as well, thinking that the bombing raids were okay. And it wasn't until we read Slaughterhouse Five or whatever, or started to think about and started to think about what happens after a war, who gets to try the criminals, what was a war crime and what wasn't, what is it all right to kill 100,000 people in Dresden, Slaughterhouse Five, and, uh, and the firebombing of Tokyo and the atomic bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima, or, and all the other German cities that were firebombed and all hundreds of thousands of innocent people suffocating because the whole theory of it was you suck all the oxygen out and everybody dies so i you know so your brain gets a bit confused when you get a bit older and you think about all that yeah i don't know that collateral murder video no yeah they should yeah. be locked up there's the clear yeses and the clear no's yeah but i think that there is this sort of 
horrifying sort of gray zone you know so take syria um when isis was sort of still a very major threat there and looking like it could you know take over the state in 2017 to its own stats the us made 11,235 airstrikes there and that sort of seems fairly staggeringly high as a number but then i dug out the stats um for russia and russia's stats say it made 71,000 strikes there yeah um well they there's a slight difference in that they were there at the invitation of the syrian government do we think that the syrian well, government is a legitimate one well well in 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 the absence of any evidence that says otherwise yeah we do i mean they've they've they do, got they still have elections yes but their last election had no opposition parties no no ballots in opposition or rebellion controlled areas and 95% what 95.1% vote for Assad yeah does that sound like a free and fair election no well so so it's the only evidence it's sort of the only evidence that there is though i have to say and might it not have been a good idea to let the Syrians get on with it and figure out how, if they want to have a fair election? I mean, there's no fair elections in the United States because it's all bought and paid for because of Citizens United. Well, I mean, this, the Syrians were trying to sort of do this out. They they had a sort of peaceful Arab, Arab Spring style, but uh, uprising where they tried to sort of push for a bit more freedom, a bit more... It's 11 until 2013, I know. I, I have read the history. I, I know, but, you know, a, a friend of mine who lives here now was sort of beaten and tortured. He was electrocuted in Assad's cells. Yeah. And, you know, the most of the opposition in Syria is nothing like ISIS. It's, secular, it's driven by secular people who want freedom. And, you know, Assad and Russia have bombed them into oblivion and tortured them and forced them out the country. Yeah. You know, is that not a greater horror? Than well, what, quite would you what would you suggest? Invade Syria and destroy the, and completely destroy the whole country? Are you suggesting a regime change boots on the ground invasion of Syria? Get rid of Assad and impose whoever your guy is and it'll all be all right. It doesn't work. We've seen those attempts again and again and again, particularly in the last 50 or 60 years since I've been paying attention. And while we're talking about bombing, I've just been reading in BJ and um, Noam Chomsky's book here about Laos. And however many times you read the numbers, you talk about the 71,000 missions. When you read the numbers of the bombing of Laos, you know, back in 1969 and 70 and 71 and 70, it's just beyond all imagination how much ordnance was dropped, way more than was dropped on the, in, during the whole of the Second World War on everybody was dropped in, on Laos, on that neighbouring country to, the, to Vietnam. I will pull back to, to Syria at some point, but I, I just wanted to sort of move a little around to, you display quite a few names of people who've been killed by authorities, sort of mostly the US and the UK. And some of those, I think, would be very familiar to the people in the crowd, you know, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd. But I think some of them probably 
you know, most people won't have heard of. I think I saw Colin Roach, Rashad Charles, Blair Peach. You know, yeah. which what what made you choose who to flag and sort of why? Well, working with an almost entirely American crew as I have, Sean Evans, who works on the visuals with me, and my editor, Andy Jennison. They're both United States citizens, born and bred, blah, blah, blah. And because I live in America, because that's where we're, there tends to be a natural tendency for it to all be very USA-centric. And so uh, I have made been at great pains to say, no, we can't do that. We need, we need footage from Turkey and, you know, and from uh, wherever. It doesn't matter, Russia, anyway. And we need names from other places as well. So that's imposed by me, and, and it's an attempt to make it a bit more global. And, and so... Although some of them, like Rachel Corey, well, she's American, but she was killed in, in Gaza. And Shireen, you know, Abu Akhle, obviously a recent thing, who was um, killed in the occupied territories. Um, well, so I don't know. I try and stay up to date a little bit, and I try to include people from all over. And um, it may be that some of those things are like I would, be happy to get rid of, except everybody's somebody's brother or mother or sister. or So all the victims of um, uh, ultraviolent, political ultraviolence in situations, or just the, um, just battling with the police, which happens whether we like it or not. In the UK, if you look at the history of, for instance, West Indians in London and, the, and all of that, um, shit happens. People get killed, and it has to do with racism as well as um, the inequality of our uh, financial circumstances and all, and all the rest of it. So I don't know what to say. Is it more important than Grenfell? No, of course it isn't. These individual cases of police brutality or whatever. But um, can we forget any of them? No, we can't. There are brothers and sisters everywhere. And obviously sort of police and inquest others have had a lot to say on se several of these, you know, some have, you know, been found to be wrongful deaths and no one's been punished. Some have led to jail time for some of the police, although a lot shorter than someone else would get, but others sort of have tried, have kind of said, we've done a full investigation. This is an accidental death. You know, yeah. someone choked on a swallowed package or, you know, that kind of thing. Do you accept or reject those kind of official rulings? Well, I, I wouldn't like to give any blanket, except or, am I yeah. capable of making mistakes? Of course I am. You know, have I got some of it wrong? Probably. I, I can't go through all the judicial inquiries of all the stories that get brought to me about things. So... But I'm quite prepared to accept that I could be wrong about it. Yeah. Oh, don't don't worry. I don't have a gotcha in my back pocket here. Well, it's, I, um, if you did, it wouldn't matter. I yeah. I would say thanks. Thank you for bringing me up to date or showing me the error of my ways. Or what. I'm always prepared to be wrong about everything because, you know, to be certain, yeah. except for a very, you know, very few things. I was writing a letter today about um, NAMI, Winborn Andresi, who's a friend of mine. And, and who have you seen the news today? No. Well, they have chucked her out of the Labour Party now. They've said she cannot oh. attend the first NEC meeting, which is next week or what, because she's contravened some Labour Party rule. Everybody said, how long is it going to take them? 
after she was elected to the NEC to throw her out. It's taken about 10 days, you know, which is pretty amazing. Um, why did I bring that up? Oh, I wrote a letter about it. Yeah, I wrote a letter about it. In this letter, and I'll say this to you because I talk about my mother, and you may not have heard this story, so I'll tell you very. When I was 13 years old, I was having a problem thinking about something that was going on in my life. And my mother could see me wrestling mentally. And she went, what's up? And I went, oh, I'm thinking about this. What? And she, I told her. She said, you know what? Yeah, I can understand that. It must be difficult. She said, all through your life, you're going to um, come up against difficult problems, you know, different things to think about that may not all be easy. When you do, if you'll take my advice, and she, you know, she said, you'll do this. Read, 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 read. Find out everything that you possibly can about whatever it might be. It may take you some time try and look at it from both sides or from all sides of it, man, that's such a thing. When you've done that, you've done all the heavy lifting, your work is done. The next bit is really easy. And so I went, what's the next bit, mum? <laughs> you know, and she said, you just do the right thing. And it's not that complicated. So long as you have some kind of a moral compass, and you can only have a moral compass if you care about your brothers and sisters, all of them. You can't cherry pick human rights and you can't decide what there's one rule for some people and another for, this is what our leaders do is they decide there's one rule for us and another rule for them because we're good, and they're evil and we'll do as we fucking will like. And if we have to kill them all, we have to kill them all. But it's all right because we're in the right. And this is kind of how international politics, when it comes to invading people and killing them. Uh, yes, yeah. as you know. So sort of on, on that principle, sort of why I, I came at this by a, sort of some of the people who'd sort of been killed by authority and where authority sort of tries to hide that or argue with it, you know, it felt to me there was a sense that when, you know, when there are clashing narratives as a first principle, you know, while as you research, et cetera, as a first principle, believe the less powerful, the less privileged group. Was that, would that be fair? Um, partially, partially, I suppose, you know, but, but yeah. mainly that is because the group, the oppressor normally has um, a closer grip on the narrative so, so they can write the narrative. So, yeah. you know, but at a certain point, sometimes things become much more graphic and clearer and the narrative starts to slip from their grasp. Um, again, like I would say, like Israel, Palestine now, but even when it does, it's still very difficult for the oppressed to get out from under the heel of the jackboot. Because how do they do it? If you're occupied and there are soldiers everywhere, you know, with M15s, it's very difficult to say, hang on a minute. You know, I think we've clearly shown that we're being oppressed. You know, we were sort of living here and then you came along and tried to throw us all out and now you're killing us all. And, you know, but we have no recourse to the law. 
which is a line from one of my songs, like in the gunner's dream, it's part of the gunner's dream, a place to stay, enough to eat, somewhere old heroes shuffle safely down the street where you can speak out loud about your doubts and fears and no one ever disappears. You never hear their standard issue kicking in the door. Everyone has recourse to the law. Well, that's me going back to my obsession with Paris 1948. That's basically the Declaration of Human Rights, enough to eat, a place to stay, blah, blah, blah. That's what it is. Well, Palestinians don't have that. They, they, they don't have any of it. They don't even have the right to life without, with recourse. So recourse to the law, in, in my book, is hugely important. That's why Julian is so important, because he does not have recourse to the law. They've decided to kill him, and they will. So um, this sort of it's just sort of a stance that you've had that really seems to jar with me from what you've just said and what you say elsewhere, which is this it's again in Syria, and it's the chemical attacks that took place there. It did not take place there. If you're talking about Duma on April the 17th, April the 7th, 2018, yes. there was no chemical attack. We know that for absolute sure. Both the main inspectors for the OPCW have come out, Ian Henderson and Inspector B, and said there was no chemical attack. And they've been fired from the OPCW for that fact. And the, and the report was written by people who were sitting in Istanbul. I mean, let, let, let me stress, there wasn't only one chemical attack. There have been multiple other ones. Let us argue or not about Duma, although it's too daffy among a larger team. Are you talking about Duma? No, they have or been not talking about Guta as well and Karek shape. Yes. Well, I, I know all about those attacks as well. And you, you can take your pick on what, what you choose to believe about those things. But Duma is cut and dried. And they actually had a meeting of the Security Council two years ago, less than two years ago. All right. Because a friend of mine, Aaron Marty, gave evidence to it. And, and the guy who formed the... Um, OPCW in the first place, who was the first leader, director of the OPCW, wanted to give evidence and they wouldn't let him speak. I right. watched that whole debate in the Security Council because I did. So I've I've followed quite quite a lot on this issue. I mean, look, we can talk about Duma or not, but... Well, I wish you would. But essentially, the issue here becomes you have what I think is a clear example of imperial power sort of Syria backed by Russia, and you have relatively small rebel groups that are getting minimal US support because the US and the UK basically decided not to care about Syria. And in that context, I don't understand why we don't believe the victims rather than believe the imperial power. There is not any prospect of a real invasion of Syria or regime change there. You know, that's not what anyone's pushing for. So why are we believing not anymore. Assad and Russia over the people who are being bombed and the people who are facing chemical attacks? Why are we believing that they're killing people on their own side, their own children, in chemical attacks or to stage chemical attacks? Well, why don't you answer that question for yourself? You know the answer just as well as I do. The, the information that comes out of a war, the first casualty of war is the truth. We all know that. So you can cherry pick whatever you want to believe about Ghouta or about Duma or about Sheikh Khan or about Idlib or about any of, the, any of the stories or about the white helmets or about 
the Russians or about the Americans or about ISIS. You choose, take your pick. You choose whatever narrative you want. I do not know all the detail of all of this. I don't. I don't know it. I know quite a lot about the white helmets because I've made it a, my business to study James the Measurer and to study the start of it and where it came from and where all the money came from and who funded it and where it was based. And it wasn't based in Syria. It had nothing to do with Syria. It was all based in Turkey. So, and you can look that up and you can go through it as well with the tooth comb. Or I could go with you and we could go around to your mate who was tortured by Assad and have tea with him and he could show me his scars and whatever and I might learn something or we might both but it very much is depends upon who you are and where you are and what you choose to believe because I could be wrong about Duma but none of the evidence points to me being wrong about Duma it all points to me being right about Duma and yet the contrary to what I believe is believed by the vast number of people in the Western sphere, because it is the narrative that is told by our newspapers and our journalists and our writers of news tell the, an opposite view to the one that I hold. And they may be right. Do we do we not risk with, with this sort of, and they may be right, or, you know, that's the evidence you've seen, that's the people you, you've spoken to. Do we not end up in a fairly nihilistic place where rather than someone, anyone controlling the narrative, we're oh. sort of all just picking up, choosing our own version. No, we don't. Because we all, choosing our own facts. We all live with who we are and how much we care about people and how much love we have in our hearts. And if we care about people and have love in our hearts, we want to know the truth. So the reason I keep coming back to Duma is because I've spent a great deal of time studying it, and I believe that I know the truth of what happened in Duma. So I can live with myself and go to sleep at night knowing that the story that is being sold by the Western media is propaganda and it is not the truth. I know the truth, and I'm, I'm sure I'm right about that. The rest of it, your mate who was tortured... I'm, 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 he, I'm sure you're right. I'm not sure you're right, but I'm prepared to believe you on, on the evidence of kind of probably. But it's sort of a guess on my part. It's not a guess on yes. his part if he was there. No, I, 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 uh, I understand you're saying you'll take it on trust, but well, I, I, just, I knew him, and yes, yeah. um, I, I just, I just find it quite difficult because. You know, you're clearly someone who can be extremely compassionate. You know, I was reading a couple of days ago about you working with Clive Stafford Smith, uh, you know, excellent guy, and helping get sort of two children who'd been sort of brought against their will into Syria out again, you know. But to me, it sort of seems quite cold when there are sort of dead civilians and, you know, confirmed, you know, chemical attacks are as confirmed as can be confirmed, not to have a starting position of, you know what, you need absolutely extraordinary evidence. They're not confirmed. Yeah. The ideas, by and large, what would it profit Assad to have carried out those chemicals? It's the worst possible thing he could ever have done. If he's stupid enough to do it, that's why one looks into it to go, does this seem like, no, it doesn't. Well, does it? There's nothing. There's nothing in it for faking them. There's no help coming for those people. 
Well, there's help coming from the opposition, ISIS or Al Nusra Front or whatever, oh, right. because they nearly always happen when they're just leaving somewhere. And then this chemical attack happens, and the next day they leave, and the, but they blame Assad for the attack. So it does it does a huge amount of good for them, for ISIS, for those people, and it does a huge amount of harm politically and in terms of global public opinion to Assad if people believe that his regime did that. But it doesn't make any sense at all. It's completely counterintuitive to think that Assad would do that for no gain for him, nothing. Huge negative, no gain, unless he's just a weird... Um, well, it's, it, ter it terrorizes his opposition and breaks the spirit to resist, does it not? And no. it's clearly been People demonstrated there's no the consequences to him for years ago. They were moving out. They moved out the next day. There was no spirit to resist. They'd gone. They left the next day. They left on the 8th. The, oh, I know. I'll break their spirit by suddenly having a chemical attack. And then we, I've already hired the buses that are going to take ISIS away and Al Nusra on the 8th. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll just for, do a chemical I'll, I'll look for one in Deber on the 8th, but look, we've got to get nowhere here. Yeah, so it's the 7th of April. I know the dates. I've studied it. We've got to get nowhere here. So let's let's sort of move. Well, move. isn't that a shame? Why can't you just go, yeah, you're probably right. You obviously know more about it than I do. I can know don't... more about it than you do. Why because don't you do the reading? Because you've moved it on to Deber. And look, I don't. There's no way that us having a long back and forth about the detail would make a, make it into the feature because it would be completely incomprehensible to anyone reading it, wouldn't it? So, you know, my... I'm I, glad it, you spotted that I went to Syria and say Ayub and, and uh, Mahmoud, who, which is the names of the two boys from Trinidad and Tobago that we went Yeah. To. Well, this... But this is this is why some of these things strike me. You know, I, I don't think... I think it's easy for people to believe if you say this attack didn't happen or X didn't happen or, you know, Ukraine should, it could. I know people of the left who would go, actually, this, you know, Roger Water doesn't actually care about human rights, doesn't care about people. People are dying in Ukraine. People are getting murdered by Assad. This isn't someone with compassion. I think you're someone with compassion. But I, I think the way... The mistrust of Western media is almost overspilled into only trusting the evidence of your own eyes or your own network. And I, I wonder if that becomes a bit of a tragedy or a bit of a shame. I do, well, I don't know. I mean, I, I obviously, I relied to quite a large extent on, on uh, websites for my information you know, for people who I trust because they really do a lot of research and they do a lot of um, not not just reading, but a lot of investigation into the stories that they attach themselves to. So and they and they print it all. They don't hide anything. It's not and none of it ever says from a reliable intelligence source, which is where most of the news comes from now which means the Pentagon or the CIA or MI6 or whatever, but it's intelligence sources. When I read intelligence source, I go, no, nah. because we only have to look at our past history to know that 
is bullshit, right? That's why we invaded New Rock, was intelligence sources told us that Saddam Hussein was a, a, a crazed, you know, criminal and who was going to destroy us all with weapons. And it was all bullshit, complete bullshit. So for, for what it's worth, I uh, I worked on the Edward Snowden leaks for The Guardian, so I'm not someone who uh, gets all that much from intelligence sources after that. Um, but, you know, we've been talking intermittently about Israel and Palestine, but we haven't sort of specifically talked about it other than to briefly talk about, you know, the absolutely appalling killing of Shireen. Obviously, there's contention to this issue for you. Am I right to say that you would describe yourself as very critical of the government of Israel, but not as anti-Semitic? Yeah. Absolutely yeah. not anti-Semitic. Absolutely not. This was so, actually agreed about 15 years ago by the ADL, who had a good look at me, and they said, no, he's not anti-Semitic. That hasn't stopped all the arseholes trying to smear me with being an anti-Semite ever since, but... yeah. I mean, I was going to say the ADL, I don't think, have that view now. They do have a Roger Waters in his own words page, don't they? I don't know. I I, I promise you, I don't waste my time reading <laughs> the ADL. So, you say the appalling death of Shireen Abu Akhle, they're all appalling deaths. Of, of course. Every Palestinian shot to death by the IDF is appalling. She just happened to be very well-known and very well-loved, and she was a journalist and wearing press and whatever. So, But nothing will happen to the murderer, as we know, sweep it under the carpet. Look, I, I think a lot of people will have a hell of a lot of criticism for the Israeli state and Gaza and the West Bank and the, you know, the various settlements, etc. Where do you think the bar lies? Where is the gap between being very critical of Israel and being anti-Semitic. Like, where do you think it is? Not necessarily where do you well, think Oh, we're near the IHRA definition, which who's, what's his name? George Stephen, George somebody, who wrote it, who's come out again and again and said, I hate the fact that this new definition that I wrote, help, hoping to help things a bit, has been completely misinterpreted and it's been accepted by all kinds of organizations Tell you what really got me was when I read that Cambridge University had accepted the IHRA definition of anti. I thought, oh my goodness, it's not my alma mater. I didn't go to Cambridge University, but I'm a townie. I was brought brought up in Cambridge, so I feel a certain kind of, you know, affinity for the town. What, what is it about the IHRA that you sort of so dislike? Well, that it says that criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic. It's simple. So, I mean, people, people argue that it doesn't say that. I've read all those examples. It absolutely, if I could, I could get it, pull it isn't, up. Isn't the argument that it doesn't say criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic? It says, say, criticising the right of Israel to exist is anti-Semitic. And aren't those quite different? Well, no, well, the right of Israel to, the right of Israel to exist as an apartheid state complaining about that, saying Israel does not have a right to exist as an apartheid state any more than South Africa did or anywhere else would, is not anti-Semitic. It's, it's, it's protesting um, part of the workings of a state that you disapprove of, that's all. But it's not disapproving of 
the people who live there or, or the Jewish faith, for instance, or people because yeah. they're Jewish, it's disapproving of the fact that they are a supremacist, settler, colonialist project that operates a system of apartheid. That's what we're criticizing. I mean, settler is complex there, isn't it? I mean, you know, the West Bank was... And there are 700,000 settlers. That's what they're called. The West Bank was Judea, like before it was like oh, a century yeah, before. All that rubbish Jewish of people have lived there forever. No, no longer than Arab people have, and they were in no. much smaller numbers than the Arab people. But isn't there were only ten percent of the population back in the twenties and the yes, 30s. but isn't settler quite offensive when there are Jewish people who have lived there no, for two millennia? No, no, it's not. Those people are not from there. They are not the descendants of indigenous people who've ever lived there. Then they're all from Northern Europe or America or somewhere else. So they're people of the Jewish faith from other places have come come to Israel and then gone over the border into country that is not Israel, contravening um, the Geneva Conventions and the UN Charter and settled the land in absolute contravention of, of the Fourth Geneva Convention and all international law. They are settlers and occupiers of the land. It, it is not theirs. They have no right to it historically. Whatever is written in the Old Testament or the New Testament of the Bible, which let's not forget, it has, well, anyway, let's not go into the Bible. <laughs> we could go into the Bible if you want, but uh, I'm, I'm no theologian, so Bible it's not going to help. Studies was not high on my list of things to do on Sunday afternoons. Cricket, <laughs> yes, maybe soccer in the winter, maybe even rugby when I went to a grammar school. But reading the Bible, no. So, so just to sort of clear up a couple of things, do you think Israel has a right to exist if it finds a two-state solution or some negotiated way so that it's no longer what you call an apartheid state? Yeah. And do you think Jewish people in, say, the US or the UK bear responsibility for the actions of Israel? Yeah. So do you, because it's particularly because they pay for everything. Is that not like saying that um, sort of Iranians or people of Iranian descent and Muslim faith bear responsibility for the acts of Iran? No, Iran, the state of Iran bears responsibility. Persia. So why, why is Israel different then? Well, it's not. But, but you said Jewish people in the US and the UK sort of bear responsibility for its actions. Is that not the name? Only the ones who who are politically or financially or materially supporting the apartheid project, that is the state of Israel. Yeah. So so it's not by virtue of being Jewish, it's Jewish people who support the, the government of Listen, Israel. Whenever, whenever I make my little speech, which I do several times a day, every day, about how... Um, you can't cherry-pick human rights and how I care about all my brothers and sisters all over the world, irrespective of their ethnicity, religion, or nationality. I'm telling the truth. That is my truth. Your ethnicity and your religion and your nationality have nothing to do with my belief that you should have equal human rights with all your brothers and sisters all over the world. 
Obviously, we don't all have equal rights, but that is an ideal to which I subscribe. That is why I think the Palestinian people should have equal rights with Israeli people, and that Muslim and Christian and Druze people should have equal rights with Jewish people, because I believe equal rights should extend irrespective of everything. I cannot keep repeating it. It's really yeah. simple. So just just sort of one one last bit on this particular thing, and I'm, I'm sure we probably need to start wrapping now. You've been generous with your time. Um, but one phrase I know you've used that causes a lot of alarm is from the river to the sea. Yeah. And were you aware, are you aware, it's used as a shorthand for either the annihilation of Israel or to suggest Jewish people have no claim to any of the land on which Israel sits? It's funny, you know, Mark Lamont Hill was fired from his job at the university that he worked at for using those six words within the context of a much longer conversation about the situation, Israel, Palestine, and all of that. No, bollocks, it's just a geographical description of the land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. I, it has no connotation to me apart from that. I suspect that the only solution that we're going to find to it is a, is a single state where everybody is a citizen and everybody has equal political rights. I get the two-state solution is gone, and if you can't see that, you're blind. And everybody with half a brain agrees that there is no two-state solution. Two-state solution was a great thing to waste time, waste another 40 years, waste another 30 years, whatever. And, and just sit here and allow... The state. I mean, it was, of course, supposed to be two states back in 1948. And, yeah. uh, it, you know, it was a pretty dark combination of events, which you can, you know, I. it is rare I use this sentence. I have some sympathy for the sort of authorities at the time there because you had Jordan invade what's now the West Bank. You had Egypt take Gaza and Israel, because it did shockingly well militarily versus what people expected, ended up seizing about the remaining 50% of land that was supposed to join up and make the Palestinian state. Um, but of course, given the sort of horrors of the Holocaust followed by the incredibly traumatic birth of Jewish Israel, I can sympathise with why a one-state solution in which Jewish people would could quickly be a minority when they're already very much a minority in the wider region, why that worries them so. You know, can, can you well, not sympathise with that? Well, I can understand it, but their way of going about not letting that happen is criminally insane. And we can all see it from here. Unfortunately, in the United States of America, you have a government entrenched in the idea that the state of Israel can do no harm and that they will go on giving them weapons forever. And they will go on, if you're Trump, moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to what Liz Truss is now talking about, moving the British embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Oh, brilliant, Liz. What a great prime minister you're going to of course, I can see that they might they, that they might have concerns, but they've got it. They, this cannot go on forever. They are trying to force the Palestinians into another intifada. Gideon Levy wrote a piece about it in Haaretz this morning, just this morning. 
and he's praying that they don't manage it, but they will because they're murdering so many Palestinians every day now that that the time will come when there will be another armed uprising, which will be terrible, for, particularly for the Palestinians, because the Israelis are armed to the teeth and will murder. They murder them anyway. They call it mowing the lawn. They do it constantly. So, so I can understand their disquiet. Yeah, I've been there. To, I've been to Israel. I have witnessed the shutters coming down. If you say anything that upsets. Uh, their sense of uh, ownership of everything at all. So I, I do understand what what uh, what a problem it is. So who knows? Will there ever be a unified state? Yeah, there will. Will Israelis be a majority? Probably not. Will they have to get on with it? They're not. Nobody's suggesting that they all have to leave, like it's, which is what they suggested to the indigenous people there in 1948. And obviously, this all goes back to Mr. Sykes and Mr. Pico at the end of the First World War. And before that, to the Balfour Declaration, which everybody forgets the second sentence of is, save that it do not infringe on the religious or political rights of any of the indigenous people. That's what Her Majesty's, His Majesty's government supported. Support the creation of a Jewish state or a homeland for the Jewish people in Palestine, save that it do not, blah, blah, blah. So, and Mr. Sykes and Mr. Pico and the governments of France and the United Kingdom divided up the whole of the Middle East after they defeated the Germans and the Ottoman Empire in the First World War, completely arbitrarily, just with a big pencil, you know, cre creating Iraq and creating Syria and creating this, these divisions. You have that bit, we'll have this bit, and you can do it. You can have what's it called, Syria, French. You can have the Lebanon, we'll take this and this. You know, so just talk about imperialism. That's the winners. Winners in world wars get to draw lines on maps. Just to try and not end us on a completely gloomy note, what, what gives you hope when you look at the world? When I look at the world, um, well, I, funny enough, doing these shows, when I'm in the room and everybody in the room, 16,000 people, all appear to be agreeing with me that we can sit in the bar and talk, that gives me some hope. That is a beautiful thing to feel, and it's a visceral, it's a visceral thing every night that we're in a room with an audience. I'm not saying it's 100% of the audience, but it's many, many of them having been given the permission to listen to some, somebody who they may disagree. And I don't make speeches. It's not like talking to you. <laughs> well, you've seen the show. so you can see. I have. So, so, I mean, we've we've managed not to have a bar fight, which is, I think, a good start. But, you know, I, I sit worried <laughs> with such different sets of facts and such different sets of belief. Well, that's propaganda. People come I actually talk about the fog of... Uh, conflicting propagandas, you know, and how hard it is to negotiate one's way through it. And it's really difficult. And wouldn't it be a good thing if we weren't living in a battle of conflicting propagandas? Because we are, and it's very hard to figure anything out through it. There's one other thing I want to say. It's a little story I tell about a French friend of mine. 
He's dead now. He was called Etienne Rodegil, and he was a writer. He wrote novels and lyrics to songs. One day, we were walking through New York. It was early in the morning. He was an alcoholic, and he smoked lots of cigarettes, and we stopped on 54th Street. And we were chatting, and he had a quadruple famous grouse, and I had a espresso, and he smoked lots and lots of cigarettes. And we were talking, and he picked up on something philosophical, I must have said to him. And I, and I asked him about how he felt about And he thought about it, and he did all this. And then he went, and he said three little things. I wrote them down on a piece of paper. I used to carry them with me for years and years, but I remember it. He said, very phlegmatic, like the French often are, and he said, I was here. No idea. And he went, I felt something. Yeah. And he said, and the rapsa was not alone. And I, that, I, I, I'm almost, I get emotional even when I say that now. So that's it. Perhaps I am not alone is central to managing to feel okay, even if everything seems to be tangible that shit. Perhaps we are not alone. And that is our show for today. I want to thank James Ball for conducting that interview. This was a bonus episode. We'll have another Rolling Stone music now at the end of this week. But as always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. Movies, TV shows, books, podcasts, and more. It's what women binge with Melissa Joan Hart and her friend Amanda Lee. We have Lauren Bosworth with us. Yay! The Hills. So what is like your number one question from fans? The primary question I still get asked was, what, is it real? <laughs> In 2024, to me, is a surprising question to get because I feel like everybody has been through the reality TV gauntlet at this point. What women binge wherever you listen. Hi there. Sorry for the interruption, but are you enjoying this show on Google Podcasts? You should know that the Google Podcasts app is going away this spring. That's right, going away, gone, as in no longer available. You can still enjoy this show elsewhere, though. Try out Spotify or Amazon Music, or maybe TuneIn is more your style. Whatever app you switch to, be sure to follow so you never miss the next episode. And thanks for listening wherever you listen.